0: Welcome to Governance House, this is Backgammon, our in-house podcast touching on the latest updates from the Middle East. I am Ghadi sari and I'm joined here in Washington by my colleague, Dr. John Holland-McCowan. In the past months, John and I have shared our team's insight into the recent shifts in geopolitics across the Middle East. The last month has seen shuttle diplomacy across the board, most notably the Turkish-Saudi reconciliation, which saw Saudi Crown Prince bin Salman visit Turkey last week. This comes as preparations continue for U.S. President Joe Biden's first visit as president to Saudi.
1: This is a very interesting time. I mean, we remember, Gadi, when Joe Biden was a presidential candidate, for the Democratic nomination, and he was talking about how he wanted Saudi Arabia to be a pariah. He would treat them as a pariah state. Whether well, it's the killing of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018 in Turkey, uh, and the outcry that came from that. The U.S. intelligence reports believe that Mohammed bin Salman was instrumental in having the operation be conducted. That's a conclusion that I believe that Joe Biden has taken to heart. And uh, this is a remarkable difference than how President Trump dealt with the Saudis uh, throughout his tenure. We remember, we spoke about a couple weeks ago, that Mm -hmm. President Trump's first Mm -hmm. foreign visit was to Saudi Arabia. His maximum pressure campaign against Iran, I think, very much adopted much of Saudi Arabia's line of argumentation and their worldview Mm -hmm. with differences that came out in the years afterwards. And so this is one of the first major senior level meetings between the Biden administration and the Saudis. And for his visit, to, he's going to visit Israel, of course, as well. Uh, and uh, he's also meeting other GCC leader, leaders of the Gulf Cooperation Council. So it's not just Saudi leadership, but to be able to go to Riyadh after all of this time of uh, The treating-
0: agenda is already piling up, that's for sure. Exactly
1: right. I mean, we can think of, they can talk about lots of things, whether it's supply chain issues, defense commitments. The implications of the new Iran deal still not coming to fruition and Iran continuing to increase their uh, enrichment of uranium and uh, the grave concerns about whether this deal will fall through and what a plan B is if they can't get a renegotiated GCPOA. Uh, Also issues the global oil market, something that uh, Biden and and, uh, leaders around the world are very concerned about. And, of course, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is in the environment of a legacy of the Abraham Accords and yes. trying to figure out yes. how Saudi and the GCC countries are going to potentially move forward with this initiative, something that I think we can talk more about.
0: Well, I think I suspect this is going to be more closer to the Saudis' heart than other issues at the moment. I believe that the, the, the oil uh, issue and dealing with the supply chain at the moment is definitely going to be an important issue. Uh, uh, market monitored issue, Certainly. but I do believe that, particularly with the Abraham Accords, you, you will remember that that tr- President Trump before before President Biden, President Trump was a witness to the accords. You know the the role of the U.S. as the officiant or the convener of these accords, as also the you know t- to monitor the mutual agreements, such as was the case with Bahrain and the UAE when they signed those peace deals with Israel. So this, this will tie back to Saudi's own project and expectations. As you know, the Saudi leadership's long-term project for diversification from oil in the future, known as Vision 2030, uh, as the, the conference mm-hmm. uh, has referred to it, it depends largely on the resolution of those regional tensions. So, for example, there's a project to build a bridge between Saudi and Egypt. And this is a, not a proverbial bridge, but an actual <laughs> bridge. Uh, which across, crosses over to Sinai from, from Tabuk in Saudi. Now, what that the issue with that bridge is, it interrupts, it could interrupt maritime navigation into Israel via Ilat and via the the Red Sea. Okay. And this violates the Camp David Accords in 1977 that President Sadat signed with with the Israelis. And this requires astute diplomacy. So what needs what has happened. Is those islands were initially Saudi uh, property? Mm-hmm. They lie in the in Saudi waters, and in 1945, when Saudi, I mean King Saud at the time, the founder, decided to hand them over to Egypt because they had no navy. Saudi was a was a, not even born as a nation that we know it today. So it was handed over to Egypt which kept control of it. And in 1967, uh, used it to block navigation to to Israel, which started the 1967 war. Now, Now we know that the Egyptian courts and later the Egyptian parliament have handed over the ownership of these islands back to Saudi. But as such, it violates that accord. So what needs to be done here is a transfer of that accord to Saudi Arabia, whereby Saudi Arabia and Israel agree that Saudi regains control of those islands. So it's a very, very peculiar moment in international relations, I believe. But I believe that if this opportunity is lost, that could be one of the risks. And I feel this is what one of the main things that will come out of this visit, especially that he's visiting Israel, as you mentioned, and then this GCC summit.
1: Right. You know, I think the the iron is hot for the Biden administration to acknowledge that they have serious issues with human rights but you have to acknowledge that there are these realist ramifications, practical ramifications of having a working relationship with Saudi Arabia over time. Whether it's trying to counter Iran, whether it's being able to have a financier of many of the power moves that you want to make in the Middle East in the future. And, and, and they're they're and an important foreign partner. Foreign
0: affairs, just like, inter, just like internal politics, is a, a, an art of negotiation, is an right. art of concession. And there there will be concessions made. That, that President Biden has to also make within his own rhetoric, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, that this is also something that needs to come out of this because there are real crises in the region.
1: Right. And you have countries like Russia or China who try to fill any vacuum the U.S. leaves behind on the diplomatic economic level. And so the Abraham Accords, which I think holds great promise to create more economic integration in the region, to create more political normalization within the region, that is a force multiplier for the United States and their full range of partners, allies, troublesome partners along the entire spectrum. I think those are things that the Biden administration shouldn't forsake for something that I think is a laudable ideal, which is a more perfect uh, world with less human rights violations that, of course, uh, we should continue to monitor as the years go on. Now, one issue we've yet to talk about in this podcast, uh, but has been going on a lot in recent weeks, uh, been a lot of attention to the global food crisis yes. and to what extent the Ukraine conflict has or has not contributed to it. And thus, that has large implications for the Middle East.
0: Well, as you know, uh, our colleague David de uh, looks closely at these issues, and I think we should we should turn to him. What do definitely. You think? definitely. Hello? Hey, Davide, how are you? Hi, Javi. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm here with John, and we've just been talking about a topic that I know you've been working on for the last uh, three years at least, uh, food security in the Middle East. I understand that. Things have been quite busy since uh, the war in Ukraine, a lot of impact on the region. And I know that you've been looking at this topic very, very closely. Uh, so I'd like to hear your thoughts. How, how are the developments and and what is your latest research on the topic?
2: I know uh, you've already talked about the energetic side of, of the world, um, but the war in Ukraine, as you mentioned, resulted also in a massive food security challenge at a national regional and global level. And some of the Middle East uh, countries were highly affected by, by this. Um, so as, as you might know, Russia and Ukraine are key global suppliers of cereals, sunflower oil, and fertilizers. So the export by Russia and Ukraine of wheat, it's about uh, 28% of the global export. And for sunflower oil, for example, we we reached sixty three percent. So they are really amongst the key exporter of of agri food uh, products. On the other side, as I was saying, there's some of the uh, Middle Eastern countries which are net importers of calories. So uh, wheat, for instance, plays a crucial role in these countries and contributes. Uh, for more than a third of the overall uh, food supply in each of them. Uh, as a result of the Russia's invasion in, in Ukraine, the global food prices, especially for cereal and vegetables, increased from a really high level and been at record since March 2022. So we can look at it from both perspectives. From one side, we have Ukraine that had to basically stop uh, producing uh, everything. They've been, uh, there's been disrupted livelihood during uh, the agricultural growing season uh, in Ukraine. Their parts uh, are locked, so they cannot export even what they have stored in their uh, silos. Uh, on the other side, we have countries that were uh, depending on these uh, exports from, from Ukraine and Russia. For instance, Egypt and Lebanon that imported uh, more than 75% of total wheat and wheat flour. And
0: in in particular, in the case of of, of Lebanon, for example, we know the explosion in in the port of Beirut took out the country's silos where the strategic uh, wheat depository had been. So in a way, this is a composite crisis right now for a country like Lebanon. And also for Egypt, we know that, you know, uh, bread is referred to as al-aish or as life, as they call it colloquially in Egypt. So it's a very important topic for both governments. Uh, how do you think this impacted the policies of those governments then in, in that sense?
2: Yeah, so as you're mentioning, some of these countries are already at a time of economic hardship, driven by economic crises like Lebanon, uh, sluggish economic growth in Tunisia, or uh for example Morocco is has a severe drought so but also, uh, in, Syria. Policy also
0: from, in Syria the drought has been has been across several of these parts exactly so. and
2: Tunisia uh, as well mm-hmm. so uh, in a way the response from the government to the crisis has been uh, including food export bans for example or Uh, efforts to diversify sourcing relationship and negotiation with international financing institutions. So these have been the three, let's say, uh, lead uh, approaches from from the government, uh, which, of course, in the short term could be an option, even though it's not the most likely one. Um, but I mean, this is something we've seen. Long this though. is
0: something we've seen with the with the vaccine, for example, the COVID vaccine. Some countries just did not get it on time. So let's say the financial part is uh, solved. Let's say that you have the money. Is there enough supply in the global market for countries to get what they need, or is there going to be a shortage? And because we understand the political ramifications of people going hungry, uh, especially in the Middle East, so is there a risk that even if you do secure the financing you still might not be able to get what you want from the free market as long as the conflict
2: continues in ukraine well this will will again depend first of all on the evolution of the conflict and secondly on the capacity of governments to diversify the source of import i mean those countries will still be net importers of food in the coming years so they either will find different solution to get that food from other countries. For instance, Lebanon is approaching India and uh, Turkey. And they've been talking in the past few uh, weeks and and months uh, regarding a new uh, channel, let's say, but this will also depend on the policy on how easy it will be for uh, private sector and states to uh, get food and import food from other countries. I mean, from um, judging from
0: previous experience on Lebanon, I mean, this this might not just come to, you know, with a central bank issue and and the ability to pay internationally. We can see a real crisis forming here, especially if countries like India also move towards export bans once their own reserves are, are depleted. What about actually yeah, no, being they're... able to produce food themselves? Are any of these countries capable of offsetting some of that... By,
2: by internal. I, I think so. I think so. That's, that's a medium to, to long run uh, solution, of course. So, government should consider comprehensive reforms uh, of the food subsidy uh, programs as well as import regimes. So, build food stock, reasonable food stock, that would allow uh, facing eventual future crises for longer periods so not just few months like some of the countries but let's say at least a year a year and a half uh, and consider of course new agricultural technologies which with a, a view to produce increased volume domestically uh, in a sustainable way if possible
0: and what role can international institutions play in that?
2: Uh, so there is there is a lot of of work that the the international uh, financing institution, especially, uh, are already playing and some huge projects in some of those countries to uh, subsidize and help uh, not only uh, the state, but even smallholder farmers and uh, local community to develop uh, a a better uh, production and a better internal food system um, but another way could be, for example, a dedicated food import uh, financing facility. So uh, mobilize uh, funding for rising food import bills.
0: And what about replacement of the staples? So we're talking about net calorie importers and we're talking about wheat. But could there be, I don't know if you've looked at this, but could there be other
2: other food staples that could replace this? you mean other other products of course one one solution might be also to diversify uh, a bit the diets in a healthy way as you mentioned calories are not the only uh, way of, yeah, I mean, I'm, of feeding people uh, hummus hummus can be can be one of the <laughs> you know how how i love hummus but uh, i mean there are of course you know, many products that can be can be used some for example from from the agriculture or fruits and vegetables which are largely uh, exported also for from some of the countries such as egypt to even to ukraine and and russia uh, for instance so part of the market and and reverse uh, yeah 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 yeah, even though it's it's a small part of course of of the export uh but it was also affected on on that way so So yeah, diets should change, but more like dietary diversity and access to healthy diets should be uh, taken into account. And another point that would probably be interesting uh, is the reduction of food waste and loss, uh, which could also be a way to reduce food import bills and uh, also increase in a way the amount of food that can be used for human consumption.
0: But are we already at a crisis because I have not, you know, you see the long lines in Lebanon, but a lot of it has been attributed at least locally to, you know, the, the, the local wheat cartel in the country. But are we really at
2: a crisis? Would you sound the the bell? Uh, I would. I would. I mean, we're still on time uh, to, uh, and, and again, it will really depend on how far this war will go Um but definitely, this this is a battle for uh, countries who are importing that high percentage of, of their food, basically, from, from other countries. So, uh, we are in a crisis, we're not yet at a point of non-return, uh, but we definitely have to, to take it seriously. And I think, beside what the declarations from the governments are uh, they are seriously uh, tackling this.
0: So what what is, at the bottom line, your policy recommendation on that?
2: So I, I think some countries, but even other governments uh, should keep trade in, in fuel, food and, and fertilizer open, uh, avoid ad hoc uh, policy changes as they're doing like bans, uh, on export or import, and again, start thinking on a long-term and comprehensive national food security strategy. All right,
0: Davide, thank you so much, and you stay safe. Thank you, Hadi. It's something I always appreciate about uh, Davide John is that he's always uh, able to look at how parties can help uh, in, a, in a time of crisis. But do you really think that we could see in you know a regional but international cooperation to to deal with this upcoming crisis.
1: Well, it's a great question. I think David has the better read on the multilateral efforts that can occur, but one thing, one idea has been floated around is that Turkey could play a role in trying to create this grain corridor between the Black Sea and the mediterranean by forging an agreement between russia and ukraine to allow the export of grain and other foodstuffs out of the country now that'll be a very difficult task i'm afraid because russia wants to keep blockading ukrainian ports on the black sea meanwhile ukraine has a lot of mines they've laid in order to prevent russian ships from further encircling uh, their key cities and so the dilemma is how are you going to convince the russian navy to lift a blockade how then are you also going to clear enough of the mines that ukraine has laid in order for cargo ships of foodstuffs to leave now you can imagine there are incentives for both countries to in a period of war to not do that despite the global stress of I mean, the food crisis,
0: Turkey's been been playing quite the role in this in this conflict too. You know, from one hand, it's it's a NATO ally; it is it is trying to play the role in that. But on, on another, it also has a direct relationship with Russia. So, right. what do you think with, with with Turkey? Like we've talked about it on previous podcasts, the the zero problem policy as well. Uh, you know, just they've just received NBS as we mentioned. So, what what do you think the the prospects of Turkey really playing that role?
1: Well, I think that Turkey, as you said, has done this sort of strategic autonomy framework where on the one hand, they're doing policies that are advancing NATO objectives, providing TB2 drones to Ukraine, uh, using the Montreux Convention to close the Black Sea effectively to Russian warships that are not stationed in the Black Sea fleets. These are all constructive contributions. On the other side, they're seen quite rightly as a outlet for Russian money. Um, that or you have Russian businessmen that have been told can pay $400,000 to get citizenship in Turkey if they invest in real estate and property. And so Turkey also is a sieve for Russian money that can circumvent international sanctions. In fact, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Treasury is visiting Turkey. Uh, I think this past week visited Turkey in order to talk about that very issue and the prospect of secondary sanctions potentially being implemented on Turkey if they're not more careful. And then, of course, the big news of the past month, as we last talked, is that Turkey has decided to block, for the time being at least, Finland and Sweden's ascension into the NATO alliance. Why does this matter so much? Well, in order for NATO ascension to occur for Sweden and Finland, you need all NATO states to approve. That includes Turkey. Now, Finland and Sweden have had a very constructive relationship with much of the NATO alliance, and they're certainly feeling vulnerable as a result of Russian aggression. Now, why then would Turkey decide to block it? Well, Turkey says we need Sweden and Finland to address certain demands we have. We need them to stop supporting the YPG in Syria. We need them to extradite people they claim are PKK sympathizers. This is is
0: something we talked about on a a previous podcast too. And we said that Turkey is willing to zero all its problems except when it comes to the Kurds. And we did mention that.
1: Kurds are very much a, a core source of security vulnerability, political vulnerability, uh, for the Turkish state. And so there was a use...
0: risk of an incursion into northeast Syria last month.
1: Right. Well. well, I think this is very much linked, though, Gadi, is that in order to try to convince Sweden and Finland to play ball, um, they've said, well, if you don't stop supporting the YPG and you don't extradite these individuals, which I think there's no chance of happening uh, because Sweden and Finland are uh, demo- representative democracies that don't abide by certain uh, demands. Then Turkey said, well, in that case, we're going to do our fourth major intervention into northeastern Syria in order to deal with the YPG problems ourselves. If you're going to continue funding what they consider as terrorists uh, that are synonymous with the PKK. And so I think talk about that has lessened a little bit in recent days, because I believe Russia and the United States have made it very clear that they're not going to give a green light for another intervention. Not,
0: well, yeah, not not in the midst of this international quagmire, that's for sure. But what about Turkey's efforts, you know, vis-a-vis Hamas, for example, like they've been de-escalating the Muslim Brotherhood presence and all of that. Right. Uh, and I believe that you, you mentioned when we talked about the Israeli president's visit to Turkey last month that this was going to follow. And in fact, we did see a big effort from turkey to uh curb down the the presence of hamas in their country but also sort of transferring the hamas leadership back to iran uh, uh as as now we've seen that uh, the, the the hamas boss is is in beirut uh meeting with uh the the leader of hezbollah for the third time in a year and a half hmm. there's definitely been this shift now where turkey is handing off the um, their 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 stake in uh, in Hamas back to the Iranians, and I feel this 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 game is going to be interesting. To ties back to to Joe Biden's visit to, yep. to Saudi. I mean, we're we're going back in in full circles here, but that's the state of the. It's of-
1: fascinating. No, I think it's totally fascinating. I mean. We remember when the Arab Spring kicked off in 2011, 2012, that Turkey believed this was the time to support their Muslim Brotherhood proxies in their ambitions to cease power in the Middle East, whether it's in Tunisia, whether it's with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, whether it's their tightening.
0: And now they seem to be okay with with that receding in in return for a more... uh, I think so.
1: I think Turkey was worried they're going to be left out in the the cold, but the Abraham Accords, they were worried that... Countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia, if they're making nice to each other, well, we don't want to be out of that either. And so we want to convince other countries that we have strategic utility, that we're not as rogue a state as they can appear at certain times. And so I think that Turkey realizes this is a unique moment where it's trying to solidify boundaries and shake hands with those that have been on the other side of many of these geopolitical fault lines in the last decade at least.
0: So it is it is very interesting then to follow what will come out of the. Uh, US presidential visit to, to, to the region later this month. I feel this is one of the topics we're going to keep uh, looking at for the for the near term, uh, especially in the expectation of, of a breakthrough. Uh, John always a, a, a pleasure to do these podcasts. Uh, thank you so much for your insight. And um, our bios are on the website, www.governancehouse.me. And for any follow-ups or questions, please do use the form on the website. This was Backgammon.